As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com You prepare to leave, Kate. Your day is not over. Look at her. Let's make lots of cock up so she has to stay really late. She only did that cutting out and <laughs> copying. <laughs> um, right. Um, good evening. And, Very good evening. Uh, I'm going to sit right in front of the microphone because we had another complaint. Well, I think the problem is when you turn to look at me. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. Just don't look oh, at it's me. It's so difficult. <laughs> Okay, I need to look in a professional way at the microphone. I should get there in the end. To be fair to me, I've only been doing this since 1987. <laughs> and sometimes it just takes a little bit of getting used to, doesn't it? Now, um, what a beautiful day it's been. I hope it's been a beautiful day wherever you are right now, because in London the sun has just shone all day. And although it's not the warmest, it does put a proper spring in your step. And where we are, right by London Bridge, um, there's it's oh, there's always something to look at, isn't there, out the window? Do you know what I mean? You're turning your head again. I've done, Do I've done not that. look it's, at it's, me. The skyline <laughs> is just magnifico. Um, wherever you turn, we could we Kate, you're so right. We could just let Jane move the microphone, <laughs> and then that would be easier. So hang on a sec. If you do this, yeah, and then you turn your chair around, <laughs> what? Then you can look. I'm just chasing it, chasing it all over the place. No, because then, can you see my look? My chair's facing you. Yes, and my microphone's facing me. Oh, this will never catch on, will it? And then, God's sake. And then, but at least uh, we were not Adrian Durham who tried to join us on the program today from Stamford Bridge just as they were testing the tannoy, which actually bends your ears. It's so yeah, loud, it doesn't it? It's so, so loud. So loud. But they have to test the tannoy, I guess. Anyway, yeah. you, it's, uh, Chelsea are playing Liverpool tonight. I don't know, I'm a bit worried. Liverpool's season has just been all over the place. Sometimes it's difficult to support a team. I think it'd be easier if I just changed and supported oh, Arsenal instead. Oh, that's a good idea. And because that's so easy to do and nobody minds. <laughs> no one minds. <laughs> Everyone's got a really good sense of humour about it. <laughs> yeah. um, something I was going to mention, I didn't get the chance because we had a very busy programme today, is the death of, um, I noticed his obituary in the Telegraph today, the guy who wrote the lyrics to A Whiter Shade of Pale. Oh, Do you I remember that? the light found down. Yes, it's such a weird song. It was a man I didn't know his name until today. Um, it's Keith Reed, and um, the lyric is just so peculiar and apparently utterly meaningless. But he got the inspiration, we're told, um, when he overheard a nightclub DJ telling a woman, you've just turned a whiter shade of pale. Oh, well, we know what that proceeds, don't we? What a chuck up! Yes, <laughs> so, can I just say somebody was sick at um, at Pudding Mill Lane DLR station after the Abba show, and 
I'm going to say it wasn't the classiest way to round off the night, lady. So if that was you, I hope I hope you feel all right now. Well, not pleasant for the rest of us. No, but better to be on the station platform than in the train. Well, thank goodness she wasn't on the dance floor. Oh. It, was, it was hard enough for me to move around because I had my work bag with me and I've recently changed it. It's quite big, my new bag. She could have vomited into that. <laughs> she could, if she'd been next to me. Because it was, you know, sometimes you go by and it was real prodigious vomit. Oh, no, I mean, no, 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 just, you know, no. There, there was a lot of drinking. Anyway, um, so he heard that sentence, you've just turned a whiter shade of pale. But he always denied Keith Reed being high on drugs or drunk himself when he settled down to write the rest of it. But the, the rest of the lyric goes on, we skipped the light fandango, turned cartwheels across the floor. There are also weird references to Chaucer's The Miller's Tale, um, 16 Vestal Virgins who were leaving for the coast. I mean, none of it makes a scrap of sense. But it was a massive, massive hit for Brogal Harem, and they never, ever had another big hit again, apparently. Mm. And the reason I'm so concerned about this is that it was, for some reason, one of about four records that we had in our sixth form common room at school and we were always playing A Whiter Shade of Pale. Well, funnily enough, yes. we won the inter-house music competition uh, with an a cappella version of Whiter Shade of Pale uh, at my school in 1985. Really? Yes, Gosh. it's got a place in my heart. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Yes. Do you want yeah. to give us a little... No, not really. But isn't it funny how it just didn't bother us that the lyrics made no sense at all? I think we we were even beyond laughing at Vestal Virgins. It's odd. It is odd. I don't actually know what a Vestal Virgin is. No, do you? and why they were heading for the coast. Well, these days, <laughs> if you're going to Dover, pack a meal. <laughs> There'd be a while. They, um, may- <laughs> they really would. Uh, yeah, what's a Vestal Virgin? Somebody will know. Um, Jane and Fee at Times.radio. And, um, yeah, Keith, he looks exactly as you expect him to look. Have you seen that picture? Oh, good Lord. Big head of hair, uh, spaced out glasses, and he certainly skipped the light fandango and R.I.P. Slightly less satisfactorily, he co-wrote one of the most irritating songs of the 1980s. Oh, uh, Agadoo. No, not quite that. <laughs> Agadoo. <laughs> he co-wrote You're the Voice for John Farnham. You're the voice, try and understand yeah, me. Yeah, I mean, so he went from, you know, the beautiful, <laughs> extraordinary poetry of A Whiter Shade of Pale to You're the voice. Yeah, anyway, there you go. He's no longer with us. Well, yeah. but also how unfortunate for him to die on the same day as somebody more famous than him. Which is a hazard, isn't it? Because Nigel Lawson passed away. No, well, hang on. He didn't, you see. He died. Keith died on March the 23rd. Oh, OK. So it's a late so obit. It's a, it's a late uh, obit in the Telegraph. But anyway, interesting that we both had special memories of A Whiter Shade of Pale. And there are some songs with these fantastical words that, you're right, mean not anything at all. But, I mean, Teardrop Explodes, my favourite band of my youth, none of their songs made a scrap of sense. But it didn't matter me one matter what to me one iota. I love them anyway. Mm. Uh, favorite teardrop explodes. Oh, tre- treason. Treason. Okay. Yeah. C'est juste une histoire. It's just a story. They did a French version as well. <laughs> Treason. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so intellectual. Oh, we were. Oh my my. Uh, this comes. That was very interesting. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. Well, Barbara. you were pleasantly surprised by that. Weren't yeah. You? No, That's I'm called interested. production and content. Don't point your finger at me with your production and content, lady.
Uh, Helen Murray has sent the following, uh, saying, Hello, ladies. Elizabeth Day was lovely yesterday, very wise and open, and really made me think about the ending of one of my friendships, which I know caused pain. A decade or so ago, I went through a period of confusion in my life when I was feeling unsure about a lot of things. My long-term relationship broke up and I was questioning a lot of the values I'd held since childhood. At this point, what I craved was to be looked after and given guidance, so I spent a lot of time with a few friends who had very older sisterly vibes and would boss me around a bit, making me feel secure. However, as I got myself sorted out, I began to find their company grating and belittling rather than comforting. I took a large step back from one friendship in particular and have always felt bad that the woman in question was upset and offended. I know I should have been more honest with her, but I just couldn't find the gumption to tell her that spending time with her was simply making me feel bad about myself. She's a lovely person and didn't deserve to feel so rejected. Oh. It's a brave email to write, yeah. brave story to tell us, but also that's just that's so telling, isn't it? It is almost impossible to dump your friends in a nice way, even though sometimes it's the best thing to do. Sometimes if you feel a friendship isn't working for either of you... Yeah, you should then, just go. Yeah, just let it happen. But by go... We were talking yesterday, weren't we, about how you can't now escape your past. If you wanted to, back in the day, you could leave your hometown and never, ever have anything to do with anybody you grew up with again, if yep. that's what you chose. But these days, that is pretty much impossible because you can be tracked down by anybody, even those people you very much wanted to leave behind. And Yes, and, and also you can track them. And I think yes, sometimes yeah. human curiosity uh, means that you end up checking in with the lives of people uh, who you don't like, are irrelevant to mm. you now, you've fallen out with, you you know, whatever. Yeah. But you do, you click on them and a little thing bubbles up again, doesn't it? I want to thank the person who emailed us. I mean, actually, we read out their email on the programme rather than on the podcast. This was uh, a young person who's in their 20s, now studying Oxford, who said they really felt our pain yesterday when we were belly aching about the smartphone and its influence on our life. And as they told us in their email, they've never known life without it, without all that connectivity and looking at other people's lives and being strangely irritated by them. But they're still nostalgic, if that's possible to be, for something they've never known, a world without all this. Mm. And I think sometimes we just need to take a moment to realise that we didn't used to live this way. Yep. And you don't have to live like this now. Almost impossible not to. But yeah, you see, I say that and then I realise how completely addicted I am. Yep. to. Yeah. I thought yeah. the internet would have a spurt and then stop for a while. Hasn't happened so far, has no. it? No. And then a very clever person said that the world will never go as slowly as it's going today. Every day makes it go faster and faster and faster. And I could weep at that concept because I thought there might be another plateau coming up. But, but AI is going to change all of that too. <sighs> I know. Deep a heavy size. Deep size. I want to go back to the sixth form common room and procol harems, white a shade of pale. Yep. It's a shame. I just want to sing a cappella myself. Okay, um have you, can you read the email please that written by Julia who was so fuming that she didn't she, basically she you could tell she typed this out in an absolute fury but is really grateful that she's now got it off, off oh. her chest. It's entitled Isn't He Marvelous? Okay. So I'm going to try and do this justice because Jane's right. It's just blah, 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 blah. Here we go. 
I felt I must write as you've been talking about births, men, labour, etc. My daughter recently had her second baby, with a capital letter, who she, with capital letters, delivered alone while the midwife was out of the room. A week after the birth, my daughter, her partner, the two-year-old and newborn decided to go for a pub lunch, mainly to get out of the house. My daughter sat on a hard bench, vagina full of stitches, nursing the newborn, feeding the two-year-old, grabbing an occasional mouthful of food at the end of a hectic lunch. No punctuation. My daughter's partner wiped the table with the wet wiper table of women opposite were amazed and commented on how marvellous he was. All coming up in capital letters, wet wipe to table, what a man! Gave birth, no pain relief, delivered <laughs> her own baby, actually got out of the house. Yes, he's marvellous. Full stop, no space. Will things ever change? Exclamation No! <laughs> no. So, Julia, uh, I feel your pain. I really, really, really feel your daughter's pain as well. And Chad uh, and I just completely agree. You can't clap for someone by wiping no. a table. No. I mean, it's nice. It, it is, is nice. a nice thing to do. Yeah. Better than not. But I mean, as we know, wet wipes in Britain containing plastic are about to be banned. <laughs> uh, this is something the government's announced this week, but it turns out it announced it five years ago as well. <laughs> so you know, sometimes you've just got to own these things. Um, and we just acknowledge that this this particular government, and I dare say governments of all political views, well done, thank you, <laughs> do have a habit of announcing and then re-announcing for goldfish people. Goldfish yep. people? You know what I mean. Well, they're just very lucky that that original wet wipe announcement wasn't biodegradable and <laughs> simply disintegrated before they could raise it again <laughs> um here's one from pearl listening in southern arizona um life before cell phones says pearl oh i've just finished writing a book set in 1980 when i traveled solo across the usa before any kind of technology was used by the general public i met an american man en route and the book ends with my return to the uk but he and i kept in touch via letters and postcards unimaginable now Phone calls were prohibit prohibitively expensive. We married in 1981 and stayed together, here's the kicker, for almost 30 years. Uh, but he always resented the fact that writing was at the centre of my life. Now I'm happily divorced and harvesting all the writing I struggled to accomplish when I was married. My book is called Go. I still don't have a cell phone. I don't really seem to need one. And I have to admit, I smirk a bit when I see how attached my friends are to theirs. I'm looking forward to the coronation with a Canadian friend on a very large television screen. We don't know which of her Canadian friends is going to be crowned on a large television screen, but Pearl, <laughs> let us know. Uh, no, I know what you mean. And I hope you and your Canadian friend hugely enjoy the revelry on May the 6th. It is May the 6th, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah, because it's, it's the week before your revision. <laughs> It is. I mustn't stop talking about... I mustn't start talking about two of them in the same breath as though one is more important than the other. Because that, of course, isn't true. Yeah. We've been... Um, we were talking yesterday about the... Was it the portraits of the king? Oh, yes, we've done some crafting. We have done some crafting we? today. Yeah. Um, I mean, we are fully grown women. Well, <laughs> kind of after a fashion. But today, um, <laughs> we, we decided, um, just after I ill-advisedly had eaten... A hot cross bun, which is one of those ones that... Well, you, you're you a fool to yourself. Well, no, the Marks and Spencers have like, pimped hot cross buns, yeah. and, I, and I couldn't resist banoffee ones. They're not very... I'm sorry to say, I love Marks and Sparks normally, but they, they were. I was promised caramel chunks. Well, there weren't any. 
And doesn't I mean, banoffee pie, doesn't that have bananas in it too? Well, I didn't, I mean, I think they faintly whiffed of banana, but I couldn't taste any banana no. in it, no. Anyway. anyway, you got through that, and yeah. then you'd spotted a newspaper article uh, about the new King Charles stamps. Yeah. And we've been talking on the programme yesterday, and I think we mentioned it on the podcast, didn't we, that the government has made available an awful lot of pictures of the new monarch, and any public building... Uh, or office, actually, that wants a picture of the monarch. I just send off. <laughs> send off. Uh, presumably with a large stamped addressed envelope. That's a thing of the past, isn't oh, it? Yeah. Stamped addressed envelopes. Mm. Uh, and uh, you can then get one to hang up. And we were saying, why don't you just do it yourself? So, what have we done? Well, we got a picture of a, of a stamp, because they've just been released or they're going to be released very soon is it tomorrow i think so anyway there were some images of the stamps and we've made big one of the images and we're going to put it in a frame so uh, we that didn't took up quite a large part of our working day today um but so we didn't do it ourselves we got no, to give credit to kate, kate who's who did the, the enlarging she did the enlarging and the photocopying and printed it out and trimmed around the edges and i think uh, one of us is going to bring a frame in and yeah. then we're going to put it in the frame. And Bob's your uncle. It's mm. like being a Blue Peter presenter, isn't little it? Bit, yes. Um, but so, kids, if you're thinking about going into the media, this is go for it because this is what you can do when you're heading for your seventh decade. Right? Okay. <laughs> we're so pleased with ourselves. It's <laughs> pathetic. So we are going to put it up on the socials. Oh dear, it'd be absolutely fine. But just harking back to our earlier conversation, that is one thing that I genuinely miss is doing very bad crafting and making things at home because now I do just flick through pictures of handbags that I've mm. got no intention of buying. And I can't remember the last time that I just did something genuinely pleasing. I've always been shit at craft. Yeah. But there's something very pleasing about spending a bit of time actually just engaging your hands with your head and making something. And I don't do that anymore because the phone's shinier got shinier things in it and you know it's my bad not to do that but it's a shame actually but i can no longer make myself because i've lost the ability to well, why don't it. you set yourself a little task over the weekend to create something oh no that's t no that's okay well, well just i'll bring it in and we'll just laugh no. at it. well, it, well you, you're, you've been charged with finding a frame for our portrait of the king okay anyway. so you do some crafting <laughs> Well, I'm away next week, so unfortunately I'll be too busy, <laughs> too busy to craft. Um, this, uh, I know you want to talk about the east of, east of Scotland and house prices. Um, Pippa has just emailed to say, um, I thought I've had brewing for a while, given your regular discussions on books being avid readers. Hearing Jane say that she never rereads books, I'm very keen to sing the praises of local libraries. As with all public services, funding has been continually slashed, making it all the more important that they're used so there are no further closures. I grew up going to the library every Saturday with my dad and brothers. On reflection, the one hour free my mum got every week, and so they hold a special place in my heart. Uh, case in point, after you recommended At the Table last week, I reserved it at my library. It cost 60p. I reserved it that day. It was available by the weekend. I finished it in two days. Great recommendation. Um, well, that's brilliant, Pippa. I'm really glad that you were able to read it for 60p. That's not bad, is it? It's very good. That's great. Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad you've enjoyed it because sometimes I do. I don't know whether my book recommendations are always well. I mean, if I've enjoyed something, it doesn't mean that everybody else will, does it? Or does it? <laughs> I 
just going to pause for effect. <laughs> I think you'll find everyone else is wrong, Jane, if they uh, don't oh, enjoy your yes. recommendations. Of that course. can surely be the only answer. Uh, right, a quick one about the east coast of Scotland, and then we should delve into... Well, it is one of your book recommendations, isn't mm. it? That's why we had Alice Wynn on the programme. Uh, this is a delightful email from Jen. Uh, who is uh, sitting on a plane from Edinburgh to London. Well, she was when she wrote this. I hope you're not still there. <laughs> Sounds a little bit like a coach coming out of Dover. I travelled over from my home in Bermuda to visit my elderly folks in Fife in the east of Scotland. The sun shone for three of my six days, so we'll call that a win. We managed a few day trips to the East Nuke of Fife, which has some of the prettiest little fishing what, sorry, villages. Is it really called the East Nuke? Yeah, and well, I was looking at it and I thought, actually, is that where Nook comes from? As in cranny? Yes. We could call it the East Cranny of Fife. It's funny that we say Nook and Cranny as though they're different. But they're the same sort of thing. They're just a space, aren't they? Well, do you know what? I think I know what a nook is, but I don't think I know what a cranny is. Do you? No. And I don't understand why we use that expression, because I thought, as I said, I thought they meant the God, same thing. Where is Susie Dent when you need her? Doing her own podcast about words, that's where she is. <laughs> anyway, some of the prettiest little fishing villages along the coast, as well as the beautiful St Andrews. Not much wrong with the east coast of Scotland, as far as I'm concerned, although strangely, I do think us Scots seem to stick very much to our own side of the land, and as a consequence, I don't know the west coast very much at all. Too wet, too many midges, as my dad would always say. And that's so true, actually. I think it's just one of those really weird things, like the kind of uh, rivalry that you were talking about between Liverpool and Manchester. Yeah. Daft. Apart from seeing family, the highlight of coming home is seeing my friends, four lovely ladies I grew up with. We all lost touch as young adults and then reconnected when one of our dearest mutual friends died at the age of 38. We vowed then that we would honour her memory by staying in touch and call ourselves the Dead Friends Club. Very dark, I know, but she would have thought it hilarious and be thrilled that 17 years later we still get together. There is something so special about friends you've known since childhood, an ease and comfort and a sense of complete acceptance, even though our lives are very different. I treasure them all. And then Jen adds that she's about to land in London and she's going to see her daughter for a couple of days. She, by the way, pays a ridiculous rent in Hackney for a tiny flat. Well, she would. She would. We're off to see Sylvia tonight. So excited. Please add Bermuda to your world tour. Uh, we're Sylvia happy is do the that. musical about Sylvia Pankhurst, isn't it? Yes. With yeah. I think Beverly Knight's in it. Oh. Yeah, no, I'd like to see that, actually. Uh, the bit that I left out was uh, just Jen talking uh, about the fact that um, they live in Bermuda. Yes, you just mentioned it. <laughs> OK. Yeah. And here's another Bermuda correspondent, Heidi, who arrived in London from Bermuda last week uh, to run the London Landmarks Half Marathon, raising money for Tommy's, the baby's charity. Um, I really hope that went well for you and well done on being able to do it. Uh, the half marathon was epic, says Heidi, and the wonderful crowd spurred me along the route. During the course of the race, we passed several branches of the shop you've been talking about, Boots, and I scrutinised them closely and can concur that despite the name, it is clearly not the place to pick up a pair of galoshes. I'm heading home filled to the brim with culture and happy memories. She saw Elton John at the O2 while she was here and Sheridan Smith in Shirley Valentine. That's not bad, is it? That's very good. People are really out and about, aren't they, Jane? They do. They embrace the cultural life of London, as indeed I am doing this evening by going to the theatre again. For someone who doesn't claim to espouse 
theatre. Theatre, you're there all the time. I'm constantly spotting. I've got uh, blue lights to finish off. Oh, yes, I haven't even started that yet. Oh, you've got a treat ahead of you there. I'm so busy with housework. I can't sit down as early as you, I don't think. Now, our guest, uh, this... Uh, <laughs> Our guest this afternoon was the novelist Alice Wynne. Drunk? No, but I hope to be. I sometimes find it easier to enter a theatre with a drink. I've got to be honest. Alice Wynne is the author of In Memoriam. Uh, it's her first novel, and it is already a Sunday Times top ten bestseller uh, in the hardback list. So it's very fresh out. This book. Alice is only thirty. Um, this is one of the best books I've read in a long time. It's a love story set in the First World War. I have read other books about the First World, World War. I'm sure lots of you have as well. But for some reason, this one really, really got to me. Alice has moved to America. She did go to school in the UK. Uh, but she told us from her home in Brooklyn how long she's been living in New York. Um, I just moved in, in September after the pandemic. Um, we Yeah, we also lived in, in Vegas right before we moved here. So that was a, a weird transition. Right. And of the Two, which one do you prefer? Do you know, I loved Vegas. Vegas was absolutely great. Great pool parties. Right, OK. Well, hopefully that will be some inspiration for your second book. But we're here to talk about <laughs> In Memoriam, so let's let's get yes. stuck in. Thank um, you for all those lovely things you said. Well, no, I've, I've really loved it. And Fee, um, my co-presenter, will be able to back me up here. I have really gone on and on about it so i was really delighted that you were able to talk to us alice she oh, has thank you for having me. yes <laughs> um so tell us first of all because this i think you got the inspiration for this from your school magazine at marlborough college can you just tell us a little bit about that Yes. So I was I was trying not to write a novel uh, because I had um, unsuccessfully, you know, written three and they hadn't gone anywhere. So I was I was trying to set that aside and focus on screenwriting. And I was procrastinating on some edits. And I also was reading Goodbye to All That by Robert Graves. And you know he talks a lot about Siegfried Sassoon. And Siegfried Sassoon went to Marlborough College, my, my old school. And I just got it into my head. I was like, oh, I wonder if he ever wrote any poems uh, in the school paper while he was there. And luckily, they had uploaded all of their papers um, from the early part of, of the last century. And so I just, you know, and this is classic procrastination, I just fell into this hole. I read, you know, all the papers from 1913 to 1919. And what started as this, you know, avoidant uh, tactic to not do any work turned into a, a real obsession. And tell us uh, about the tone of the magazine, because um, 1913, I mean, it was all sort of rather hearty and what we call now jolly hockey sticks sort of stuff, wasn't it? Absolutely. So the um, the newspapers begin, or when I started reading them, they begin, it's 1913, and these boys are just, um, you know, smug and irreverent and funny and, and charming and entitled, right? I mean, they have every reason to believe they're going to inherit the world. And when the war breaks out, they are so excited um, because it, you know, they, they can't wait to go fight. And they write all these terrible poems about, you know, how they're going to go and beat up the Germans in no man's land. And then they all start enlisting. And then they go to the front and they write these letters back to the school, which I, I find rather poignant because it shows how young they are. You know, they have two places to write to, you know, home and school. And that's it. That's all the experiences they've had so far. And the letters they're writing back to the school are again so you know jolly hockey stick is a good uh, a good descriptor it, you know it's a lot of talking about how they don't have to bathe and no one yeah no one's making them wash and then they start dying and when they when they start dying it's their younger brothers and younger friends still at the school who have to write the obituaries the in memoriams and these also changed tenor throughout the war at the beginning of the war they are 
incredibly um, sort of almost starry-eyed. It's a lot of, you know, we envy him, his gallant death. Mm. And then as the war goes on and it becomes apparent, it's, you know, it's not going to be over by Christmas and there's so many people dying, um, you know, the they become much, much more just viscerally sad. And and something I think a lot about is that so much war literature is written by people who who went through a, a trauma and then, you know, processed it for 10 years. And now they are trying to express what they went through to people who weren't there um, in this sort of clean and, and um, thought out way. But the newspapers were just by these teenage boys for each other, right? For people who are, who are going, currently going through a trauma for other people who are also there. And it, and it almost feels voyeuristic to read them. It feels too intimate because it, it's so unprocessed, this grief. So it was, it was really just an incredibly um, upsetting read, to be honest. And, and I, you know, I was going to, I was living in LA at the time and I was going to parties and telling people about them. And they were very much like, oh God, this is such a downer. Can you change the subject? And I just couldn't, I couldn't get across what I was feeling um, just by talking. And so I had to write a book. Well, it really it really comes across. Your passion for the subject is, is so clear on the page in the book. And of course I knew that many, many people who fought in the First World War were young. But until I read this book, I'm not sure I'd been as aware as I ought to have been. And it's the fact that so many appeared to be able to enlist well before they were 18. How did that happen? Well, I, I think that that happened... Uh, it, it's sort of hard to get a firm um, idea of how often that happened just because obviously it wouldn't have been publicly written about very much because it was sort of against the rules. I think especially at the beginning of the war, there was so much excitement um, that I think a lot of these boys would have just, you know, pulled strings to try and to try and get um, officers commissions, despite the fact that they were underage. And then as the war goes on, then of course there aren't, you know, they, they have to put in conscription that they, they start really needing more soldiers. So, you know, you do hear these stories of boys, um, going to the enlistment office and being asked how old they are and saying in it, you know, being like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm 17. And then the person saying, well, we'll come back when you're, uh, go, go for a walk around the block and then come back when you're, when you're 19. So you hear stories like that. Um, I think, that uh, you hear these stories like Kipling, right? Um, whose son, Rudyard Kipling, uh, his son was 18 and he had really bad eyesight. And so he hadn't passed his medical, uh, but Kipling was very well connected. And so he was able to pull spring strings to get um, his son Jack uh, to the front. And uh, Jack actually died when he was 18 at the Battle of Luz. He was last seen just walking blindly through the mud and they didn't find his body until the 90s. Wow, actually, I mean, the way you put it, he pulled strings to make sure his son did get to the front. Um, that really uh, really makes you think about it. Um, there are some truly heartbreaking stories in your book, which I think you've based on what you found out about what really happened at Marlborough. Uh, the three brothers, all of whom had, had, been, had been head boy, all of whom were killed. Yeah, um, the Woodruff brothers. So, yeah, I, I stumbled upon them when I was reading. You know, in fact, I, I, I kind of... I would grow attached to um, a, a, a boy because he was funny in his writing or because um, someone had written a funny story about him in a recap of a cricket match. And then I would, you know, you'd get a letter back from him and then you would you would really become quite attached just reading these newspapers. And the Woodruff brothers were um, incredibly 
popular, successful, um, you know, members of this school community. Each of them in turn had boy. Um, Sydney Woodruff even won the Victoria Cross. Um, so everyone was very proud of that. And uh, each of them in turn was killed. Um, and, and I think you know, when the second brother was killed, they did this really, um, you know, full, in the paper, they, they put pictures of all three of them. And they said, you know, the third brother is injured, but he's recovering. And, you know, we wish him an, a long and happy life, because it would be too hard on his parents otherwise. And of course, he died as well about a year later. So it was it was really, really heartbreaking. And, you know, you read things like that. And uh, it it's very um, fertile ground as a, as a novelist, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, you really uh, brilliantly bring to life what you believe life in the trenches was like. I mean, of course, you don't know any more than I do just how grim it <laughs> truly was. But I was really astonished to hear that there was so much alcohol drunk. I mean, perhaps just out of necessity. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see that a lot in the literature. I, I think that that happens a lot. For instance, in Journey's End, you see that they're all just constantly downing whiskey. But also there was there was a a sense, I mean, it, it made people calmer and braver before they had to go over the top. So before a big battle, uh, they would often, they would also, you know, they would sort of dose everyone up. There's a, there's a line in... Um, in Journey's End, where, you know, the, the characters are about to go um, on this very dangerous mission uh, and they give, they what is it, they give the, the men that are going on this mission, they give them some spirits and then they give them 15 minutes to let the alcohol kind of soak in before they go on the mission. So I think it was, you know, it was seen as a tool. I mean, when I think about how little sleep they were getting, that's something I was thinking about. I, I think they didn't understand how to treat soldiers um effectively i mean because they they were just kind of running through them um and i feel like by world war 2 they had a better understanding of like okay you can push a man this far before he breaks so we must make sure that people get breaks before that point whereas in world war 1 you know they were sleeping in 2 hour chunks for 6 days at a time and then they'd be pulled back and get a little rest for 4 days in a village and then they'd go back and they'd have to sleep in 2 hour you know i just had a baby um <laughs> and i can tell you sleeping in 2 hour chunks makes you insane Mm. Um, and when we think about what's happening in Ukraine right now, I guess um, you're bound to make you're bound to make some comparisons, aren't you? Well, I wrote the book before uh, the situation in Ukraine had developed uh, to this extent. It was it was you know there was tension, but it wasn't a war. I think it really changes the way the book is is perceived because when I was writing it, it was true to say that the you know. The, there wasn't a, a great land conflict in Europe. And now there is. And I think that means that it feels much more resonant because uh, it, it, these images we're seeing from Ukraine, um, they kind of remind me a little bit of some of the images you see of, of you know, the Germans in Belgium at the beginning of the war, for instance, um, this, this cruel invasion. So, I, I mean, it, it's just awful to think about. Alice, can I just ask you about the speed with which you wrote the book, which is absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's been described as a fever dream coming out of you. Do you usually work at that kind of speed? And did you really write the synopsis for the book, the draft of the book, in just two weeks? I wrote most of the book in two weeks. Um, and then I got stuck at a, a bit... I, I sort of knew a lot of stuff about the war just offhand, and I was able to write the first you know, 70,000 words quite easily. Um, and then I got to sections where I just need more research. Um, but yeah, no, I wrote it really, really fast. Um, and then I, I promise I did edit it for a long time. It took a, a year and a half to edit it. So it wasn't just slapdash. Um, 
I don't <laughs> no, it's not usually how I write. The current thing I'm working on is it's been two and a half years of misery. So I think that's as one author said, karma. Um so <laughs> So what was it about the story that meant it could just come out of you quite so quickly? I don't know. I think possibly the the relationship between Gaunt and Elwood were the two protagonists who are very close friends even though they are very different from each other um Gaunt is one of these boys who's incredibly excited about the war he's he's sort of naive and entitled in the way that I described whereas Gaunt is um he's a little bit more hesitant uh he's half german he is generally out of step with his own time and they are also both in love with each other but neither can express that to the other and they both they both think it's unrequited and of course it's you know it's 1914 so you really can't act on it or or so they think they can't but um that relationship between them felt very vivid and clear right away and i think it, it, their friendship was really easy to write they just like each other a lot and that just kind of flew by i think As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at moonpig.com. moonpig.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. We're talking this afternoon to the author of In Memoriam, Alice Wynne. Um, a quick message, actually, Alice, from a listener in Sussex called Ken. He says, my father enlisted at the age of 15 uh, in World War One. He was tall for his age and for the time. There were no age checks and he used an assumed name. He was wounded on the first day of the Somme and ended the war as a fighter pilot. And he still had so much shrapnel in his body that he would set off security equipment at airports near the end of his life. But he almost never talked about the war. And I guess um, Ken's father's experience would be rather rather run-of-the-mill um, in some respects, certainly in the sense that he didn't talk about it. I mean, what on earth were we expecting the men who did survive to do with the rest of their lives? Um, these days, they'd be offered any amount of therapy, wouldn't they? Absolutely. Um, what an incredible story, Ken. Uh, did you say he was a he was a pilot? Um, yes, uh, for, yes. He ended the war as a fighter pilot. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you know, I would not want to be a fighter pilot in World War One because no. those planes were incredible. It's not even, you know, it, there's the, um, when I was doing research about prisoner of war camps, and there was this incredible story of of this amazing escape from Holzminden prison camp, and ten uh, officers from this camp actually got all the way back to the UK 
And there was, you know, this, this group of three men who escaped by pretending one of them was a lunatic. Uh, and the other two who could speak German were kind of escorting him through yeah. the countryside and they just walked out of, of Germany. And the, the person who was pretending to be a lunatic was this young man, maybe 22. And he went straight back to go continue with his training to be a pilot. Um, and he had to be trained on the new planes because he had been away for a while and they had developed new planes. And, you know, it just, it just crashed in a training. Um, you know, he got back and he, he was training and the plane crashed and he died. Um, and you hear stories about that all the time, training accidents. So, you know, it was, I think that had the highest rate of, of death, I think, um, or, or one of the highest rates, uh, the, the pilot. So that's a, a really, um, dangerous thing that, that Ken's, uh, was it grandfather was doing? So it's Ken's wow. father. Um, so I mean, oh, Ken, you should tell us your dad's name so we can at least mention it. Um, you, you referenced the love affair between the, the two leading characters, Gaunt and Elwood. Um, I mean, presumably you had to do quite a lot of research into the degree to which gay relationships of the time would be in any way tolerated or, or managed. What, what did you find out? Well, it was obviously a bit tricky because people weren't talking terribly openly about this. Um, one thing I did was I, I read books by men who had gone to these schools to figure out what the sort of rules were at the schools. So, um, you know, you have Alec Waugh's The Loom of Youth, for instance, which is a sort of quite strange. No, it was, it's, um, Evelyn Waugh's older brother. He basically told this sort of gay tell-all memoir about his experiences at Sherburn. And um, even so, even though this was like a scandalous novel, that is the reason Evelyn Waugh wasn't allowed to go to the school because they were like, well, your older brother came here and published a gay tell-all memoir about us, so no, you can't come, which was very upsetting for Evelyn Waugh. But even so, um, it's so, uh, you have to really read between the lines. But what I was able to kind of pick up from Robert Graves, from Ian Forster, from Alec Waugh, was that there are these sort of, unspoken rules in the boarding schools at, at this time period which is that you know as long as you are popular as long as you are good at sport as long as you are secretive as long as it is only temporary and you will stop all this nonsense when you finish university and go and marry a woman then yeah you can you can do what you want um but if you break any of those rules then you'll be expelled and shamed but that's the thing the stakes are you'll be expelled and shamed rather than you know, court-martialed, shot, arrested, hard labour, ashamed for your whole family forever, which is what the stakes are once they get to the front. And I think one of the sources of conflict and tension in the novel is that these are teenage boys. Gaunt and Elwood are very young and naive, and Elwood in particular has lived this sort of enchanted life where nothing has ever really gone wrong. And it's very, very hard for him to understand that the stakes have changed and that he can't just get away with doing whatever he wants because he's on the first 11 cricket team. And is Marlborough College very proud of all of the things that you have talked about within the novel? I mean, obviously it's fictional, but it's based on on these terrible losses within its own community. I I don't know, actually. <laughs> I, I hope they don't mind. I, um, Has I nobody been in touch, Alice, from the college? Oh, yeah, I have. I've, I, I, an old teacher, yes, reached out to me and he said, he said everyone was, was pleased. But, um, I had, I was very grateful. I had help from the college archivist, um, and yeah, uh, Grania Lenahan, I believe. And she helped me, um, kind of get, a little bit of a handle on Siegfried Sassoon's time at the college. And also, I, I think she's responsible for doing such marvellous work, putting all the um, newspapers up. But um, more, someone told me recently, and I don't know if this is true, 
But they told me that Marlborough, out of all the public schools, was the one that lost, like, per capita, the highest number of, of students and alumni, which I can sort of believe because I, I think the school has maybe 800 students, I think maybe today. I'm making some of this up, but I, I, that's about right. Yeah. And they lost 749 students and alumni, which is essentially the entire student body over four and a half years. It's, it's pretty incredible. It is an um, astonishing number of people, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I've looked into Harrow and Eden. I know it was it was um, less for them. And I, by the way, I, you know, I'm talking about all these public school boys. I don't want to imply that no, they were no, the we people. So, you know, the, the, it really, especially when you look at the conditions of the working class men, like the privates, their, their conditions of life were much, much worse. And also, if they if they started to develop severe shell shock, you know, they, they were just left there until they died, whereas the officers had a bit more leeway, were, were more likely to be kind of lifted out and rescued. So I, I don't want to imply that this is a, a tragedy that uh, completely only affected the upper class. Alice Wynne, who is a writer who I'm sure will go on to have um, much more success in the future. Her book is called In Memoriam, and um, I think it is going to be uh, made into a film. It's a very cinematic premise, I have to say, and I imagine a couple of really dazzling young uh, actors will be cast in the lead roles of the the two schoolboys who go on to fight alongside each other in the First World War. It's really sad, the book, um, in ways that I'm not going to give any more away, but I do advise that people have a look at it. Reserve it at your library for 60p if you possibly can. You won't regret it. Will you read a comedy next? Um, well, At the Table, which I'm still reading because I, I really am reading a chapter a night, um, is it does have its black comedy moments. Okay. Yeah. I tell you what I would love to find. Can we just chuck this out to the listeners? I think writing uh, funny books is really nigh on impossible. Yeah, you're right. And I can't remember, and that's why I love Susie Steiner so much, actually, um, but I can't remember the last book I read, fiction, mm. that was genuinely funny, uh, uh, but also contained, uh, you know, not kind of silly funny, you know, just had no, no, but funny dialogue or funny characters or some decent black humour. So if anybody can recommend uh, a couple of books that would genuinely make you laugh out loud, mm. to use the cliche, uh, but aren't written to be deliberately comedy comedy, I'll be ever so grateful. Yeah, you're right. I'm, it, I am racking my brains. I'm not saying it's easy to write books about sad events, because it clearly isn't. Otherwise, we'd all have done it. But it might be easier. Anyway. Yeah, I think it definitely is. And yeah. then in, in, in non-fiction, I don't want to read another, you know, boring tome written by a guru. I like reading stuff that is I never understand. people being funny about their lives, actually. Yeah. A funny memoir can lift me up no end. But in fiction... Didn't we write something once? <laughs> Anyway, um, what I would say, actually, is to go back to Alice's book, I was at the postal sorting office this morning picking up a parcel. What else would I be doing? I'm not just lurking around hoping to see the postman. Or am I? Um, I was there collecting something. Uh, Like a lot of sorting offices, our local one has really weird opening times. You you, you never know. Six till two on a Monday, (laughs) seven till five on a Tuesday, closed on a Wednesday, half day opening on a Thursday, (laughs) bugger off on a Friday. We only speak Portuguese every other Tuesday morning. (laughs) It's it's utterly, it's it's absurd. Uh, Anyway, managed to catch them open this morning and saw their First World War memorial on the side in the office and 
10 postmen died in the First World War Ooh. from that local branch in West London. And it, ju- it, it just constantly, because I was thinking about Alice's book as well, it does make you think, doesn't it? Um, these memorials are all around us, but how often do we actually look at them and think they were probably 18-year-old boys? I mean, it's just heartbreaking. Anyway, it is. Uh, no one needs to be told that about the First World War. I think it's widely acknowledged. Right, yep. OK. Um, thank you. Can I just say, sorting office in the morning, stamps of the king in the afternoon. You're going to come in in combat shorts tomorrow, aren't you? I'll come in with my... Uh, we still got the giant postman pad. Oh, no, I threw it out. That's right, I did throw it out. It went into a skip. Oh dear. I can't believe I've done Maybe that. Maybe you'll just send one of those cards tomorrow saying Jane Garvey is out. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to deliver her. Right. <clears throat> you can contact us. Why you'd want to, I do not know. Jane and Fee at times.radio. No, seriously. Uh, we are very grateful for all the emails. Keep them coming. And we got through the whole podcast without talking about that funny orange man who's always in the news. Oh, let's, let's keep let's, it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Let's yep. keep it that way. Have a good evening. Well done for getting to the end of another episode of Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. And don't forget, there is even more of us every afternoon on Times Radio. It's Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5. You can pop us on when you're pottering around the house or heading out in the car on the school run. Or running a bank. Thank you for joining us and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Don't be so silly. Running a bank? I know, lady. A lady listener? Sorry. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.